Well, as we saw last week, if you can remember, the city of Jericho uh, was a buzz. It was a buzz with the news that that Jesus was passing through. It, so it would be a buzz with the news of a procession that would be coming, uh, passing through this little town of Jericho. And this was not an uncommon thing in Jericho, as it stood on a on a major trade route, a major um, little um, road there. Uh, it travelled up towards Jerusalem. So often you'd get people, uh, the odd celebrity, which would be on this road passing through that town. And this kind of thing would gather a crowd of people that would vie to come in and, and as we saw, see these people who are passing by. Perhaps, you know, get down there, quickly rush by, grab a selfie, a photo, put it on Snapchat or Instagram or whatever they were doing in the first century um, AD. And those who saw themselves as being at the front edge, at the front edge of society, positioned themselves with the appropriate proximity to receive the maximum kind of social lubricant, if you like, from from being there, from, from being at that procession or whatever was going on. And the bigger the name that was passing through the city of Jericho, the larger the crowd, and the more prominent people, those at the front edge of society, would line the streets in those prominent positions. And Jericho was a city that was full of A-listers, of people who considered themselves at the front of society. It was a bit of a destination city, if you like, the kind of postcard that you spent a lot of money to go and, and live at, or as it seems, pay big taxes to live there. It's a great location, Jericho. Uh, plenty of commerce and trade, and all the latest ideas and all the latest fashions would arrive along uh, the caravan routes from Damascus and Arabia. Uh, it was a way stop, as we said, on the way to Jerusalem, which was the heart of Jewish uh, religion and, and festivity and worship. Lots of people traveling through on their way. Lots of people um, spending time there. Jericho, the oldest city on planet Earth, was also known as the City of Palms. Josephus, he's a first century historian, he was a priest, a social commentator. He called Jericho in his writings uh, a little paradise full of the fragrance of the local trees, trees like the sycamore tree or the cypress tree, and other trees that grew along the roadsides. It was a tropical oasis uh, due to the many springs that, that were around the sea, rich, fertile soils. It's why people gathered to live there. It had a wonderful climate, just warm and comfortable. Your wardrobe consisted of light clothing. Josephus tells us that even in winter, the lightest clothing could be worn. It's kind of like living in Port Macquarie, I suppose. Skyline was etched with the outline of four fortresses. Jericho was a military stronghold. One of these fortresses was a, a royal palace. That's, you know, A-listers like to hang around places like that. Celebrities like to come and visit places like that with the royal gardens that added to the postcard environment of Jericho. And as the breeze off the Dead Sea carried these fragrances uh, of, the, of the trees and all, all the blossoms and that, that that were there, it led to another nickname of this city. It was called the Perfume City because of all the fragrances of the trees like the sycamore tree that happened to find it as its um, native habitat. With all of this trade and commerce, with all of these tourist attractions, religious and military movement, there were taxes to be paid 
and lots of them, particularly from tourists and travelling parties. So for the right kind of person or perhaps even the wrong kind of person, there was great gain, great opportunity on offer in Jericho. Well, that's Jericho, a city uh, with an A-list population, just, who just love to be at the front page of society and in the front page of all the news that's trending. And this day was about as big as it got. Because Luke tells us that Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet, the miracle worker, was passing through on his way to Jerusalem. And no doubt the news about the healing of blind Bartimaeus, and we get his name from Mark's Gospel in Mark chapter 10, the blind beggar who'd been a fixture on the way into town, that news would have been trending in front of Jesus. And so maybe people want to come out and they want to see Jesus. And maybe people want to come out and they want to see Bartimaeus. It's something not to miss. And as was the practice of Jerichoans, I don't know what you call them. They would lie in the streets and, and to welcome and to watch and perhaps grab that opportunity to be seen with the traveling celebrities and then to be able to go home and tell stories uh, and, and, and to give their take on Jesus as they saw him, what he was like, what, what he wore, what he said, what he did. And they wondered, will he stop and will he do a miracle? Who might get the opportunity to hear him speak? Who might, who might get the opportunity to hear one of his famous parables? And Luke writes, as he entered Jericho, he was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Because he was a small in stature. And so he ran ahead and he climbed up one of those sycamore trees to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And here we meet Zacchaeus. And Luke tells us three things or four things actually about him. Firstly, that he is a chief tax collector. That he's rich. And he wanted to see Jesus. And that he's small in stature. This is the sixth time in Luke's gospel that, that Jesus has interaction with tax collectors. So in some ways, the shock of this is wearing off on us. We are expecting this universally hated man to be the object of Jesus' invitation to salvation and, and, and life in the kingdom of God. You know, that's what Jesus does. Jesus is attracted to people who are not like him. And people who are not like him are attracted to Jesus. People who most dislike religion are the people who most liked the gospel that Jesus had been talking about. And people who most loved religion were the people who, mo who most kind of disliked Jesus. And we have seen this, so we are prepared for another story of reversal. But then Luke adds an obstacle in the way. This tax collector is rich. And we also know from our journey through Luke's gospel that the rich find the invitation to salvation uh, in something other than their riches and, and their self-resources. Very hard pill to swallow. In fact, impossible. They find it, the, it impossible to reorder their priorities, to reorder their loves. So Zacchaeus, 
He is about as far away from God as you could envisage a person to be. For all of Jericho's uh, picture-perfect postcard travel brochure imagery, there is also this seedy underbelly, which with this sort of disreputable and despised people live. Zacchaeus is one, and he takes advantage of it. Actually, Zacchaeus sits at the top of this seedy environment. Here is the person who had taken full advantage of the great riches and taxes that could be made in Jericho. He is the chief tax collector. So he organizes the systems of corruption. He collaborates with his own people's oppressors to keep them poor while he becomes like mega rich, like filthy rich in every sense of that expression, which made him pretty much the most hated man in in the town. And we've been reading along in Luke, we kind of feel a little bit of pity for tax collectors. But we need to understand that you don't get this gig by being nice. This is not a nice man. If you want to place him in your mind, think like cartel leader. Think standover man out of an outlaw gang who has moved into business circles. And he uses all of his wiles and all of his cunningness to produce wealth for himself at the expense and the exploitation of others, at the expense and the exploitation of his his fellow um, Jewish brothers and sisters. But despite all of this power and all of this influence, no one is clearing away for this rich man to place to a place of prominence and prestige. Because he is literally Jericho's most hated man, despised man, pretty much hated by everyone. So Luke tells us that he is small in stature. This is more than just a physical description of Zacchaeus. He, he's probably small, no doubt about it. But it's a social description. He is someone that people think little of. He is the butt of their derision. He is constantly ridiculed, uh, jokes, a social outcast with no moral compass. Zacchaeus is the epitome of a lost soul, lost in wealth lost in corruption, lost in relationships. He stands in complete contrast to the blind beggar from last week who was lost in poverty, who was lost in physical blindness. But worse than that, he is uh, internally of little stature. He is a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you like. The more he is despised, the the more despicable he becomes. And this is because he is not only despised externally, Zacchaeus is despised internally. He hates himself. His constant internal conversation is that it's true what they say about you. You are beyond help. You are no one's friend. You are worthless. And despite his parents' hopes and dreams, like Zacchaeus means just and pure, like they named their boy to be just and pure, he has become a stench in the perfume city and a gnarled figure in his own reflection, as Kent Hughes kind of so colourfully puts it. Rich in power, rich in achievement, rich in possessions, proud in self-attainment and self-sufficiency, a self-made man, 
Zacchaeus is poor in spirit, little in stature, lonely, bitter, miserable. The very definition of loss, and as Kent Hughes sums him up, small in stature is not just how he is, but it's who he is. Out of everyone who came out that day, this irreligious and corrupt man is the last person that we would expect to find seeking to see Jesus. Because when you've convinced yourself or, or had others convinced you that you are despised or unlovable, a disappointment, generally the last person you feel the desire to see is a person of religious persuasion, is a person of religious nature. The last thing you uh, want to expose yourself to is further condemnation. And added to that, sometimes is a certain pride that judges these righteous people, these religious people, as being judgmental and disapproving, bigoted. And we need them to be so we can justify ourselves as to why we stay where we are and why we don't seek Jesus. So what made this man decide to endure more public ridicule, further derision, well, there exists in Zacchaeus what Alistair Begg calls a deep, nameless, irresistible urge to meet Jesus. There's a severe dissatisfaction in his life that he hopes maybe Jesus can solve, maybe Jesus can speak into. Tired of being hated and tired of hating back, a counterintuitive desire, a dangerous desire that humbles the pride and the self-sufficiency self-sufficiency to go and to seek and to see Jesus you know people who are not like Jesus are attracted to Jesus maybe we should remember that maybe we should remember that when we feel the opportunity just to share a little bit about Jesus to some totally you know despicable person who we might think oh wow, they could never have an impulse towards Jesus and yet here is the most despicable man on planet Earth with an impulse to find out a little bit more about Jesus. Well, Zacchaeus would have no doubt heard stories about Jesus. He would have no doubt heard all kinds of things floating down the line. This Jesus was said to be a friend of sinners, that he was someone who would take the time to hear them, to understand them. In fact, Zacchaeus knew some of these people who had this personal story, who had this personal testimony. He would no doubt have been at least a professional colleague of Levi, the tax collector from Capernaum, who had a story, his own story of how Jesus had redefined his whole life. And we read about that in Luke 5. How Matthew had left everything about his old way of life to follow Jesus. And then even through a great feast with a large company of tax collectors to come and give them a private audience with Jesus. To see Jesus, to, to, to find out more about him. Not the socially and um, religiously commendable, not these elites at the front edge of society, but sinners and tax collectors, the despised. It's unlikely that Zacchaeus was there, but more than likely that he had dealt with people who were there changed people people who had, had their lives completely changed by an encounter with jesus 
And so this small man tries to see if he can catch a glimpse of this man, Jesus. But no one deems him worthy of such a privilege. So back after back after back is turned on him. Gaps are closed up as he tries to kind of get through. You know, there's always going to be barriers and obstacles for those who feel this irresistible urge, this, this, this warming of the heart, this stirring of the soul to go and see Jesus, to know if, if what they've heard about him is true. And what we see Zacchaeus doing is he's pushing through barriers. It's, it's, it's a picture that Luke wants us to see that we should pursue. This is, the, this is the imagery earlier from those who want to strive to get through that narrow door. Zacchaeus does what he has always done and he uses his wiles and, and, and to get what he wants and to insulate himself from public shame. Luke tells us in verse 4 that he does what would have been sort of socially unacceptable, socially condemning. He, he runs, and no respectable Jewish man runs in public. It's kind of a shameful thing for them to do. And then he climbs up one of these sycamore trees in Jericho. That's more like the behavior of a child than a man. But Zacchaeus has pushed all his chips into the middle of the table, and he wants to see Jesus. And he hopes, one way or another, that his, uh, that his questions can be answered. And that hope kind of overmasters the social concerns of ridicule and this sort of stuff. And in this way, Luke presents Zacchaeus as a model to follow. That nothing should quench the curiosity about Jesus. It should be strived after. Well, once he's up in that tree... He feels a certain amount of insulation from the public scorn. He is hidden. The embarrassment, the discomfort uh, to get there is camouflaged, if you like, amongst the foliage. And now he waits to see Jesus. And now he waits to make his own assessment on this man. And perhaps just kind of sneak down and, and head home and think it over some more. That is until Jesus passes right by the base of his tree and and looks up, we read in verse 5, and the crowd would come alive. Jesus has stopped. He's looking around. What's he doing? Who's he seeing? Who is it that Jesus has spotted? Is it a synagogue ruler? Is it a prominent, prominent Pharisee? The crowd glances around. But Jesus casts his gaze up and says the last thing that anybody in that place ever thought they'd hear, Zacchaeus. Hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. And now this restless initiative that drew Zacchaeus out is met by an even greater initiative. The initiative of Jesus to call out a sinner, a despised person, to be the object and the recipient of his grace and his favor. This is how Jesus saves lost sinners. He does it by walking right up and into their lives. He brings his own welcome. He opens their hearts and he inclines them to respond. One wonders whether Zacchaeus kind of fell out of the tree or climbed down out of the tree. But something new emerged in his heart, a personal invitation from Jesus. Jesus actually spoke his name and it's warmed his heart with joy. To be outed by Jesus from places of shame, the trees that we climb, that we hide away from our story, does not lead to more shame. 
does not lead to more embarrassment, more ridicule, but rather this is the beginning of true acceptance, the replacement of all this uh, dis-ease and dissatisfaction with peace and joy. There is no longer any need to hide our lives from God and pretend to be anything other than who we are. But it's not a fairy godmother moment where Zacchaeus is somehow mysteriously transformed. Jesus intends to do business with this man, have a conversation with him. Jesus did not stop to meet with Zacchaeus just to share in his sin, to make him feel okay about who he is and what he is. You know, hey, you're doing the best with what you can, mate. But to offer him the fellowship of forgiveness, to transform his heart. It is true that Jesus loves you just as you are, but that love is not prepared to leave you that way. And then there's the crowd who are unified in their displeasure that Jesus has gone to be a guest at the house of a sinner. You know, no matter what Jesus thinks or does, Zacchaeus' peers still hold this deeply ingrained opinion of him. And now it seems that that opinion of Zacchaeus is, is, is associated with Jesus. And they grumble. And Luke tells us Jesus has gone to be a guest with sinners. And so they grumble. How could any religious man go and sit with a sinner? Sometimes the hardest thing to deal with is not what God thinks of us, but what our peers think of us. This can hold us back more than anything. But Jesus will continue to go after this broken heart wrapped up in in its own intoxication of, of power and wealth and self-sufficiency. And right here now we see uh, how Jesus will show how it is that the wealthy too can find salvation. After that alarming news back in chapter 18, it's almost impossible for, the, for those who are rich to, to find salvation. You know, it's like a camel going through the eye of a needle. But now we have not just a righteous rich man, we have a wicked rich man well, the phrase gone to be a guest means that Jesus has unpacked his bags and stayed the night and spent some time around the family table with Zacchaeus we don't know what was said by Jesus that leads to this radical dramatic conversion of Zacchaeus that we get there described in verse 8 and then affirmed by Jesus in verse 9 but we can speculate from the gospel of Luke that it required repentance and disordered loves of his heart that sin had nurtured into a fortress being melted by, uh, by grace. Grace found in an encounter with the person of Jesus. Whatever has been said, you can bet your life that Jesus deals with the things that keep this man hiding in trees. That keeps him from standing out uh, in, in the open Presence keeps him kind of standing out before God, feeling like he can be present before God. And grace does its work on the heart of this despised man to turn him into a disciple. Holy Spirit does everything inside Zacchaeus, as he does in you and I, that needs to be done to save us. He convinces us of our sin, and we see that in Zacchaeus' confession. 
He teaches us who Jesus is. He changes our minds and our hearts so that they are ready to receive Jesus as Saviour and Lord. And all the time while holding the integrity of our conscious decision making in place. The compelling evidence of this deep heart transformation is seen uh, dramatically in practical terms. Like I said, apart from Jesus, the fact that Jesus actually says, today salvation has come to this man, into this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. We see some practical, apart from Jesus' own testimony, we see some practical uh, implications. Zacchaeus has publicly confessed his sins. It's extraordinary. If I have defrauded anyone, which is actually an admission of guilt. It's not like, oh, you know, if I did it. He's actually offering an invitation to anyone that he is defrauded to come forth and let him know, and he will make restitution. Now this man of little stature displays a big faith as his reoriented priorities turn from, from self, from self-sufficiency to now um, looking after, caring for those who he's defrauded turning his wealth back towards the poor. Now accepted by Jesus, Zacchaeus has uh, no impulse to hoard and deceive, but rather to confess and make restitution, restoring those he has wronged to four times the amount that the law requires. Zacchaeus' repentance and new life motivators, motives are displayed in the gospel symptoms of generosity. Generosity is one of the key evidences of salvation, particularly in Luke's gospel. And here we see uh, it in Zacchaeus after encountering Jesus. The impossible has become possible as Zacchaeus in a public and very costly way redefines his life and what brings meaning to his life and what brings security to his life. You know, the way a person uses their money is one of the best indicators of their spiritual condition. Generosity flows out of your confidence in your forgiveness, a confidence uh, that God is for you, that you don't need to self-save, that you don't need to hoard and these things. This generosity is not what merits or becomes the means of Zacchaeus' salvation. That lies elsewhere. That's tied up in the conversation that he had with Jesus around um, how Jesus has come to seek and save the lost. But it is the evidence of big faith that now exists in this man. Faith in Jesus. Faith in all that Jesus has said to him. What, what of our faith? Where is the evidence of our faith? Are there areas of our lives that need this kind of radical renewal? Have we been stealing in, in relationship spaces with our wives, with our children? Have we been hoarding money for ourselves, just totally investing in self rather than, than releasing our, our resources for those in need, the poor, those around us? Have we been serving self-interest rather than serving Jesus? Where have we been living selfishly? A faith in Jesus should transform that to radical generosity. Generosity with relationships. Generosity with money. Generosity with how we serve and release uh, our gifts and things. 
should make us into sons of Abraham, which is a description of big faith, not ethnicity. Big faith that has actions. In Jesus, Zacchaeus finds this long lost identity as a man loved by God and saved by the Son of God. Perhaps in all that Jesus discussed with Zacchaeus, he explained the context of his summary statement to the crowd that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And that the reason Zacchaeus, or the reason that he could call sorry, Zacchaeus down and out of that tree was because he would be soon lifted up on another tree. We're like 10 days away from that event. The reason Zacchaeus could find acceptance and approval with God and come out of his hiding in trees was because Jesus would absorb the wrath and disapproval of God on another tree, on a cross. Jesus exposed, becoming our shame, taking our guilt, bearing our curse, even unto death. It's an exchange of trees. The exchange of sin and shame that melts the heart of this cartel lord to go from being a despised, money laundering, small in stature kind of a unit to generous, a humble child of God, a son of Abraham, big in faith, deep heart transformation and satisfaction. It is the initiating grace to call him out, to call him down, to seek the lost that sees Zacchaeus full of faith. Evidenced in joy and generosity. Augustine spoke of this when he says, You follow close behind the fugitive and you call us to yourself by ways that we just can't understand. I wonder what kind of tree you might have climbed. You might find yourself hiding in. Climb down. Jesus is calling us down. He's saying grace awaits, not cheap grace, not fairy godmother grace, but grace that exposes and deals with sin, the sin that makes you despised externally, internally, and grace that transforms and gives you a new identity in a family of faith, makes you a son of Abraham, includes you in the kingdom of God, makes you one of one of these people who, who sit here and act generously toward each other. Jesus went to a tree so you could come down from yours. He came to seek the lost, those who are despised, those who think their lives are not what God would ever stop and pause and say, I must come to your house. I must come to your heart. Let's pray. Loving God, here we see a picture of uh, just how um, despicable and despised we can be, how much we can be hated and how much we can hate ourselves. And sometimes we wonder whether a person who does such wicked things can ever be um, you know, met by a holy God. And here it is, here's the picture. That you move towards us, regardless of our state, and you seek in your love 
to deal with that mess, to deal with that state, and to transform us into the kind of people who are no longer uh, at odds with God and in dysfunctionality there, who are no longer at odds with each other and dysfunctionality there, but into people whose lives have been reordered into, into joy and generosity, uh, into sowing into um, faith and life with you and into sowing into um, community and life with other people believers and those around us our prayer this morning is that that would become something that is so real to us that we pursue the transformation of it we not merely just kind of think about that intellectually but look at how you have called us out of um, our self selfishness and into a life of deep faith in you that evidences itself in lives of active generosity we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.